0: Welcome to the September 1st, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of new material published in the last two weeks. As summer wanes in the Northern Hemisphere, Annals continues to publish many new articles related to the pandemic, but there are also some interesting new articles about non-pandemic medicine. Some people live in fear of COVID-19, while others don't see it as a serious threat to their well-being. The first article I'll mention discusses a psychological theory that may help to explain this diversity of responses. Years ago, J.T. McCurdy, a Canadian psychiatrist, proposed that in the midst of a population-wide traumatic event, the population can be divided into three groups. Direct hits. These are the people who suffer direct injury leading to their demise or incapacitation. The second group are near misses. These are those who feel the effects but are not debilitated by a physical effect. In the setting of the pandemic, these are individuals who may have become sick but recovered, or individuals who have experienced sickness or death in those close to them. Remote misses comprise the third group. These are people that evade harm to themselves or those close to them. Near misses result in more cautionary behavior than remote misses. McCurdy's theory is that if the proportion of remote misses in the population exceeds direct hits or near misses, The population can be left with a feeling of invulnerability and a false sense of security. This may be the situation with the COVID-19 pandemic. Despite its widespread impact, remote misses far exceed near misses. As debate continues over the reopening of schools in the U.S., a new analysis published in Annals on August 20th sheds lights on the risks for adults who work or live in close contact with schoolchildren. The researchers studied nationally representative data from the 2018 National Health Interview Survey to determine risk factors for severe COVID-19 illness among teachers and adults living with school aged children. They found that 2.3 million school teachers are either over 64 years of age or have chronic diseases that put them at high risk of severe COVID-19. These data highlight the importance of opening schools in a manner that protects both children and the adults that interact closely with them. Previous pandemics have led to psychiatric morbidity among healthcare workers. Protecting healthcare workers' mental health in the aftermath of COVID-19 requires an evidence-based approach to developing and deploying comprehensive mental health support. In the next article, researchers from Stanford University School of Medicine, the University of California, San Francisco, Mayo Clinic, and Children's Hospital of Los Angeles reviewed 96 articles addressing clinician mental health in COVID-19 and prior pandemics to identify common themes and lessons that may help to mitigate a pandemic-related mental health crisis among clinicians. In addition to the literature review, The authors collaborated with the Collaborative for Healing and Renewal in Medicine Network to gather practice guidelines and resources from healthcare organizations and professional societies worldwide to synthesize a list of resources deemed high yield by well-being leaders. This article is a must-read for anyone who leads a clinical team and also for those of us who encounter colleagues who are suffering under the weight of the pandemic. Annual influenza epidemics in the United States results in 140,000 to 810,000 hospitalizations and 12,000 to 61,000 deaths each year. Although respiratory disease is a hallmark of influenza virus infection, cardiovascular events are also important complications of the flu. In the next article, researchers analyzed data from the U.S. Influenza Hospitalization Surveillance Network during the 2010 to 2011 through 2017 to 2018 influenza seasons to examine acute cardiovascular events in adults with a hospitalization associated with lab-confirmed influenza. More than 80,000 patients were included in the analysis. The researchers found that almost 12% of patients hospitalized with influenza had an acute cardiovascular event. The most common such events were acute heart failure and acute ischemic heart disease. Older age, tobacco use, underlying cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and renal disease were significantly associated with higher risk for these events. As such, the avoidance of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality is among the many reasons that clinicians should promote high rates of influenza vaccination. Next is a synopsis of the latest clinical guidelines from the American Diabetes Association on pharmacological therapy for patients with type 2 diabetes. The guideline article includes a lot of details, but in summary, the guidelines recommend the following. Lifestyle changes in Reformin should be first-line treatments. Second-line medication options include SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, DPP-4 inhibitors, sulfonylureas, and basal insulin. Early combination therapy should be initiated for patients who do not achieve glycemic control within 3 months and or for those with cardiovascular or chronic kidney disease. Insulin therapy should be discussed with patients as a way to escalate therapy rather than as a failure on the patient's part. And while we're on the topic of diabetes drugs, next is a case report in which metformin use revealed Milos syndrome, a syndrome caused by genetic defects in mitochondrial DNA and characterized by encephalopathy, lactic acidosis, stroke-like episodes and an associated rare type of diabetes known as maternally inherited diabetes and deafness over recent days annals has also published updates of covid-19 related living evidence reviews on angiotensin inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and sars-cov-2 infection hydroxychloroquine and the prevention or treatment of covid-19 and masks to prevent transmission of viral infection Go to annals.org for the initial reviews and the most recent updates. Standard testing for SARS-CoV-2 infection requires a nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal sample, which introduces limitations, such as the need for healthcare personnel to obtain the sample and the risk of transmission during sampling. There is an urgent need for innovative testing strategies to expedite identification of cases and facilitate mass testing. Researchers compared results of saliva tests and standard diagnostic methods of nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swaps. Despite a lower estimated rate of detection compared to swab testing, they showed that saliva testing was feasible and may offer advantages on balance in remote, vulnerable, or challenging populations. Although studies indicate that influenza vaccination during pregnancy protects against morbidity in both the woman and her offspring, Some pregnant women worry about flu vaccine during pregnancy. In the next article, researchers from Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, studied live births between October 2009 and September 2010 in Sweden, with follow-up through December 2016, to examine the risk for autism in babies of mothers who were vaccinated against influenza during pregnancy. In total, 39,726 infants were prenatally exposed to the vaccine, 13,845 of these during the first trimester, and 29,293 were unexposed. After a mean follow-up of 6.7 years, the researchers found that the risk for autism was virtually identical in vaccine-exposed and unexposed children. Restricting the analysis to vaccination in the first trimester of pregnancy did not influence these findings. These findings should assure pregnant women that receipt of influenza vaccination during pregnancy will not increase the risk of autism in their babies. Next is a survey-based study that found that cannabis use is on the rise among older men and women in the US. The researchers studied data for 2016 to 2018 from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System a random digit dials telephone survey with results that are generalizable to the US population to describe recent trends in cannabis use among Americans older than age 55. The survey asked about the number of days in the prior month that respondents used marijuana. The researchers found that the average prevalence of cannabis use for all respondents age 55 years or older was 4.9%, with the proportion of men reporting use twice as high as that for women use decreased with age and was generally higher in states where recreational cannabis was legal. The authors advise healthcare providers to be attentive to the potential for cannabis use in adults in this age group. They also believe these data support the need for studies of the effectiveness and safety of cannabis for medical conditions in this rapidly growing segment of the population. The next article shows a deep learning model, a form of artificial intelligence That was more accurate than the current standard for predicting a person's 12-year risk of developing lung cancer. The model's predictions are based on chest radiographic images and basic demographic and clinical data available in electronic health records. The findings hold promise to better target lung cancer screening. The author of an accompanying editorial from the National Cancer Institute discusses the researcher's findings and raises a number of issues associated with the use of artificial intelligence and, more generally, data mining of electronic health records to improve patient care. Next is a synopsis of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the U.S. Department of Defense's Joint Clinical Practice Guideline for the Diagnosis and Management of Hypertension in the Primary Care Setting. The guideline authors found high-strength evidence that showed benefit of intensive blood pressure lowering in patients with hypertension for improving cardiovascular outcomes. In most subpopulations, intensive lowering was favored over less intensive lowering, but the data were less clear for patients with diabetes or cardiovascular disease. The guideline also recommends periodic screening for elevated blood pressure in adults. For non-pharmacologic blood pressure lowering, the researchers recommend weight loss, exercise, and the stop hypertension or Mediterranean diet. Evidence supports the use of a thiazide-type diuretic, calcium channel blocker, or either an angiotensin-converting inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker as primary pharmacologic therapy for hypertension. For patients with resistant hypertension, defined as those who are not adequately controlled with maximally tolerated dose of triple therapy, the guidelines suggest adding spironolactone in those patients without contraindications. Also new is a history of medicine article that recounts the legacies from the Nazi past of the German Society for Internal Medicine. And in the clinic review on hepatitis C virus infection, several on being a doctor essays and poems and an Annals on Call podcast on T regulatory cells for the treatment of COVID-19 infection. Also, for the doctor moms and doctor dads who are listening, you should check out Grace Ferris's latest Annals Graphic Medicine, titled Signs You Might Be a Physician Mom. Personally, I'm a bit abashed to admit that I recognize many of these signs in myself. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the articles that I've mentioned. There are ample opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Stay well, and please come back in two weeks for our next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.